The Digital Care Futures podcast series is a collaboration between the Sustainable Care Research Programme, funded by the Economic and Social Research Council, and the Technology Enabled Care Strategy Board, TSA, the industry and advisory body for the UK tech sector. For each podcast, we invite expert guests to explore with us the challenges and opportunities technology can bring to care and caring. Hello and welcome to another of our Sustainable Care Programme and Technology Enabled Care Services Association podcasts um, as part of a mini series. And today we're talking about technology enabled care services and how they can deliver beyond managing risks to think about things like well-being, prevention, proactive services. And something that we found during our research was, although traditionally telecare and technology enabled care services have focused quite in quite risk averse ways on supporting people on discharge from hospital supporting people when they live alone for the, perhaps the first time after bereavement we're seeing a bit of a shift we're seeing increasingly services thinking a bit more about those sorts of broader agendas thinking about the spirit of the care act and the social services and well-being act in wales and how we can create services that are delivering on well-being and i'd like to bring Nathan Downing in now, who who's, works for the Technology Enabled Care Services Association, to talk a bit about their work and what they've observed in the sector quite recently. Thanks very much, Kate. And, and it's always good to say TSA as well, and just to be able to get, get it out more quickly. I, th- I think it's pretty clear that we have seen uh, over the last 12 months, with uh, 12 to 18 months, with certainly everything that has been going on around uh, the world of the, of the COVID pandemic, we've seen a rapidly growing appetite for those uh, for commissioning and delivering more proactive services. Um, so clearly, there's an appetite there uh, to drive things forward. There's an appetite from sons and daughters um, looking out for mum and dad and understanding how can they can remain connected, but also know that mum and dad are safe without necessarily always uh, being able to be there. But equally, we have seen the challenges that have come across from from shifting to a very much a remote working model over the last uh, 12 months. The, the technical, uh, dare I say, lack of interoperability, uh, the challenge around bringing our technical systems up to speed with the requirements of services, trying to be more outcomes focused and not being led by, by the technology, and being really clear that it's the service wraparound that is making these proactive services far more effective for the end user, for the commissioners, etc. We've always been rich in data across the world of telecare, technology, able care, assisted technology. Um, but how do we use it from an intelligence point of view? And that's been the challenge. How do we take this forward and be far more evidence-based in our decision-making ahead of crisis rather than being predominantly focusing on, yes, very important safety critical services, but always being reactive? I think that's a really interesting point as well around this, the user expectations and you know, increasing people are purchasing and paying for these services themselves. And something that we observed in our research and there was a lot of enthusiasm for among not just commissioners of services and and technology enabled care service providers but also we spoke to people who access care services and and carers was around the potential of internet of things and mainstream devices and the way people were using them in quite quite creative ways to support things like their well-being and their independence and commissioners sort of are now I think waking up to that as a potential means to deliver on some of these these aspirations but I think there again there there are challenges there I think there are challenges around the sort of safety standards and you know data sharing and people being fully informed and it's a consumer relationship with a lot of these devices and you're sort of putting a lot of 
the onus is then on the consumer to understand how that data is being processed by human review and how it's being stored and things like that. So I think there are always opportunities, but there are always challenges. And I think there is work going on. I'm, I'm aware at government to try and think about how they're going to create standards around Internet of Things and whether that adequately addresses their use in care context. I don't know. I think that remains to be seen. I think you're spot on. I think clearly, um, and certainly from a TSA and our subsidiary um, tech quality, we will always talk about the importance of quality and standards of ethical practices. Um, clearly, there's a world that is rife with technology. The technology is increasing, um, growing more intelligent uh, every day. But again, it, for me, it has to come back down to it might say technology enabled care, but it's the enabling part that's the most important. How can we use a blend of virtual and physical care to support people? How can we use a blend of technology and services, effective response, tapping into local community assets and, and networks? That's really what's going to support people to remain in their own homes and communities safely for longer. From a technology point of view, let's be clear, there is not a one technology supplier out there that can do all of this. They, the technology suppliers out there have to work more effectively and collaborate. They have to be interoperable. They have to understand how do they how they part of the solution in partnership with service providers and commissioners. Um, because frankly, people in their own lives are using technology that quite often is far in advance of what we may use in technology-enabled care. There are almost 15 million smart speakers in the UK. People are voting with their feet. Half the battle for them has always been, well, where do I find these services and these solutions? The services hopefully we'll hear from today and indeed the people that we're working with across the TSA really are at the leading edge. But again, I'm sure they would all admit not everybody has the full the full range, the gambit of, of services in place. And for those that are leading better on use of technology and data, they may well be struggling on benefits realisation. For those that have a very clear relationship with commissions and really have that partnership working well, they might not necessarily have embedded practices in social work and occupational therapy and people seeing enabling care services just as they would see domiciliary care or aids and adaptations. Thanks. I think that, that segues nicely into, into introducing our speakers today, our guests. So I'd like to welcome our guests today who are Carla Dix from Delta Wellbeing, which is based in Carmarthenshire, and Rupert Lawrence from um, Amica 24, which is in Worcestershire. Welcome. And maybe you'd like to start by introducing a bit more about yourselves and, and, and the organisations you work for. Carla, do you want to go first? Yeah. Uh, so I'm Tech Prevention Strategy Manager with Delta Wellbeing and been with them now for about sort of uh, two and a half years really but I've been involved in tech since about 2011. I think the the company itself uh, is a local authority trading company so it's unique in as much as that we're the only tech company in Wales to, to be to, to work in that sort of way so we're wholly owned by Carmarthenshire County Council and that, that was that sort of happened a few years back now really where there were lots of pressures then I say from the council in terms of not meeting budgets um, as we're all aware tech isn't statutory provision within within the UK so there are always challenges when we come to sort of looking at those budgets and how that can actually be funded so the director at the time I, I don't think he'll mind me saying is, is a bit of a disruptor that when he comes to these things very innovative in his his the way that he works but tends to push those boundaries really and, and obviously 
was was very compelled utilizing the social services and well-being act and those changes that we had from a legislative point of view to really drive forward looking at a different way of providing this service then really um and clearly championed the proposal for delta and i think normally it's about two to three years for these businesses to be set up and i think it was live within about nine months so you could see that it was very much a something that they really wanted to drive forward you know obviously a very traditional alarm receiving center arcs or opportunities though to just sort of push those boundaries like i said really so um i think you know when, when we're talking about um him being a disruptor i think it's more about the fact that actually transformation is really difficult to do and you really do have to push to those boundaries and and, and to sort of get people to come along with you then really i suppose but i, I think that there's lots said against uh, about the act really in terms of that preventative approach and, and and opening those doors and and we all know that legislation to a degree can be um interpreted slightly differently by by people but again pushed right to those edges really in terms of that and and i think the director felt that it was an opportunity then to sort of try to sort of make that sort of wholesale change really and open up those doors it allows delta to work within a commercial world I'd say come away from some of the bureaucracy that, that is involved in local authority. Uh, we, we still we still are involved in that, but I think we're also a trusted partner for a lot of people because we have that connection there. But also on the flip side, because we're branded as a separate company, then I think individuals, our you know end users, family, uh, and and people that are involved with, with those clients also see us as an opportunity to be something different than statutory service provision because i think there is a lot of not negativity but people don't necessarily want to be seen by a social worker or don't want to necessarily be you know involved in that statutory service provision so i, I think we've been in a position to have the best of both worlds a little bit then really with regards to that and i think we've with the social services and well-being act as well there's a duty that's been placed on um, local authorities to provide that information, advice and assistance at the front door and Delta actually provide that for Carmarthenshire Council. So actually we are that sort of conduit then and that, that, that person in between. So when somebody does phone that front door, we are able to look for solutions that don't necessarily involve that step into statutory care and support them in the community for a bit longer. And, and certainly over the last couple of years and with the project that probably come on to discuss now with Connect, we're hitting a sort of a 25, 30% preventative outcome at the front door, which is significantly more than it was pre-COVID, but also pre the Connect project. So I think clearly we're, we're hopefully, you know, with our, I'd say we've probably got significant integration. I, I mean, I come from a different local authority and although we work quite closely with our health board, I'd say certainly within our regional partnership area in West Wales, we've got quite a lot of integration with health, social care and housing. And I think we're in, you know, that sort of a, a good position then to sort of coordinate between them then. And, and like you said, Nathan, Nathan mentioned the fact that we've got this sort of very data rich sort of environment within the tech world. And I think we've got to look at opportunities to be able to share that information appropriately. Um, because at the end of the day, clients are not interested in telling their story 15, 20 times to the same people that are probably supporting them somewhere along the line. You know what? So I think as a as a company, we we've managed to sort of and push those boundaries. And I think we are probably at that, that sort of cutting edge of, of that. And and the opportunities are, are quite significant then to to try and push forward from an art point of view. 
Thank you. That's really interesting. And I, th I think that sort of embedded, connected approach, I think, is 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 really valuable. Um, Rupert, do you want to talk a little bit about Amica and, and how it operates? Yeah, so for the last six years, um, been leading uh, Amica 24. And when I started there, very traditional telecare uh, type service and a pretty typical experience within the local area of telecare models and um, what could be done uh, with those and what the experience was. So it, it actually, you know, been quite a negative experience for a lot of people there. Um, and that was something that um, we really wanted to to overcome. And we were quite well placed as, as um, kind of a third party organisation, part of a housing association. We were able to uh, be that kind of independent advisor and um, and essentially a disruptor uh, in the end because we um, came in with different ideas and different models for for how a service uh, using assistive technology could work and you know that was just a really really powerful thing once we started to really highlight what the benefits of um, assistive te technology could be how you could actually demonstrate the outcomes for for people and for families and carers and, and other stakeholders across the piece that that was a game changer and this is what we really need to highlight across the uk we need to really highlight what the service uh, models are and that whole wraparound because until you start getting to the actual outcomes and proving those and really showing those and uh, creating buy-in from all of the parties, you won't actually get anywhere. Nathan was talking about the technology um, and the need for interoperability and things. Absolutely, yeah, that, that is an absolute must. But until you actually get to the service model and, and getting the key stakeholders all involved and bought into that process, you're really going to struggle to um, create an effective technology-enabled care service. And I keep talking about technology-enabled care through lots of the conversations I have, and, and I keep coming back to an idea that I'm really passionate about, which is technology-enabled healthcare, because I think that's where it needs to go. Um, and I think the pandemic has just absolutely highlighted that. You know, everybody being more acutely aware of, of their health um, I think, you know, that's that's been my experience. And, you know, we've certainly seen it through the service that we've been uh, that, that we operate, um, you know, that real kind of concern for people's health and indeed their well-being as well. The effects of lockdown, the effects of isolation um, and loneliness has really been brought to, to the, the forefront of, of a lot of people's thinking. And I think that that's a key thing for us to, to grasp in, in this industry. And I think it's a key thing for commissioners to grasp as well. We're not going to realise the benefits of assistive technology to the fullest extent until we start to really have jointly commissioned technology-enabled care services. And I think that that is where we need movement in the, in the UK. We need to have a, a real appreciation of the benefits of technology to everyday life, to everyday health, uh, to looking after our, our vulnerable people in uh, our communities. Because, you know, the pandemic has really highlighted that, that we need to have more effective models of care and healthcare out into the community. And technology, uh, assistive technology is, is a key facilitator for that. And 
you know, when we start to move on to the conversation around the power of data and not wanting to tell your story to 14 different people, this is really, uh, you know, the, the key conduit for that. And assistive technology can really wrap that up. And we've got to overcome some of the challenges that Carla was talking about in terms of data and uh, people's um, obviously consent for for that and things. But these are all things that can be achievable. And if we get backing from health commissioners in particular, we can overcome those together. You know, this is this is not insurmountable. Um, it's going to be easier to do that. So these are the key kind of buy-in that, that we need to get. But once you get to a service that is outcomes focused and you're looking at people's well-being indicators, and, and we we use a tool called Health Independence and Wellbeing Outcomes Tracking, and it's fantastic because you're seeing what the impact of that technology-enabled care package is for that person and for the people around them as well. Um, you know, it's, it's key to, to capture all of that, that feedback. People are very uh, accepting of technology uh, now. I think that that, that myth is, is getting completely smashed now that people, you know, especially older people don't want technology. They do. They absolutely do. They can use it. They want to use it and they see the benefits of it. And when you actually link that to their well-being, it's really, really powerful. These are the key things that we need to get to right across the UK. I think I think you're uh, uh, totally, both totally spot on. I think it's refreshing to hear that, to be honest, in both of your uh, opening um, statements or conversations, the actual technology was probably mentioned uh, pretty minimally. It, it's very much around the service, it's exactly where we need things to be going. Yes, technology suppliers need to play a role in that, but I'd like to think we can support all of those um, suppliers of solutions and services to think differently around understanding the language, understanding the needs of individuals and services and commissioners. And the technology, without being too flippant, should be the ease of it. Uh, clearly, there's the, the, you know there's new new apps, um, new devices coming out every five minutes. Um, we know there's a, there's a large piece of of ongoing work for all services and commissions to be doing around the shift from analog to digital solutions. And I know um, in, in in other podcasts there'll be more discussion around that. So I don't want to. And plus, I'm not technical enough to be able to talk through that. But I do think seeing digital as an opportunity to think differently about services rather than seeing it as a, just a switch, you know, a, a light for light replacement of what you've got now for a digital version is crucial. Um, understanding that you cannot expect people to leave their own devices behind when you're in their home and say, well, that's great. That might have supported you and, and helped you with independence, but here's what we're offering you. Uh, and, and similarly, technology-enabled care is, as, as you both said, is outcomes-focused. So if somebody's outcome is to be able to get down to the shops, how do we support them with technology sitting in the background, and whether that be people almost with a, a plan in their pocket to help them understand what's going on through their day and help them next. So somebody with learning disabilities, accessing these communities, um, whether it's uh, somebody wanting to connect with friends or knowing where the local sit-down yoga club is or, or gardening clubs or whatever it may be, that's part of the service offer. That's part of the ongoing signposting uh, that hopefully we'll be able to come on to in terms of the service wraparound. So that's the goal. I know I'm, I'm kind of pushing on, on our suppliers, but it's it's for them to really understand the use case for the services rather than being led by a piece of technology. Now, where can we put it? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right that often it is tech, tech first. And we, you know, it is very you know, exciting, the technology inherently, new bits of kit are exciting, but we, we can't let, get led away by that. And it's actually the service and the wraparound, as you say. And Carla, would you like to talk a bit about the Connect project and how 
that is very much embedded in, in the work you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. So um, this is this is my um, I've lived and breathed connect for the last couple of years, to be honest. And probably could have a whole podcast about it because I do tend to go on a little bit, but I won't, obviously. So connect really is coming from a transformation program that uh, Welsh government had provided sort of support across our regional partnership board so again i suppose it's, it's a little bit different in wales than it is across across the border so we have our health boards um and they work then quite closely with the local authorities within that health board footprint so we've got Carmarthenshire, pembrokeshire and keradigion and our howells are health board that we work within and i suppose there's, there's an element of that's perhaps why things are a little bit more integrated for us in terms of the fact that I suppose they've sort of been forced to work together a little bit through those budgets being pooled, albeit that it's a, you know, a, a grant award as opposed to budgets truly being pooled then, I suppose. But it gives us the opportunity then to, to actually, you know, get that sort of proof of concept out there then really and, and, and make things work. So Connect certainly does focus on prevention and being proactive in, in the delivery. Nathan's already touched on the fact that actually tech really is just the facilitator in this and it isn't the main focus of, of what we're doing and it's the additional wraparound and enhanced service provision that Connect provides which is probably where the success lies in, in terms of what's gone on. It's been adapted from the uh, the Barcelona model which uh, anybody that's lived in tech world for the last however many years is probably aware of but I believe that we've actually we spent a, a lot of time really adapting that model and making it fit for purpose for our customers and clients and that's not having uh, anything negative about what's what the spanish model is but it is a completely different sort of world that we're living in they're in a statutory world out there and that's the biggest sort of difference we're, we're in non-statutory so i was i suppose is perhaps the next iteration from a uk sort of perspective then in terms of that model and you know the core functionality as i said is about that tech being there and, and everybody has a lifeline and, and we are looking at other opportunities as we hit that sort of digital world to sort of work a bit differently and, and be more innovative in the, what we're providing. But the, we provide then that whole wraparound service, which is very bespoke to an individual. You know, we, we link in with our social services and wellbeing assessment in terms of the ethos around it being person-centred, what can what are their strengths? How how are they coping? How are they managing? And then we will look at then those areas where they want to improve things. They may want to make some changes. And what we're trying to do with our community wellbeing officers, support and act as a, a bit like a key worker then. So, you know, not social workers, but we, we're a step back in terms of that community support. We then empower coach, mentor individuals to sort of move them, I suppose, in terms of their well-being and, and trying to achieve the things that perhaps they feel that they can't do. So we've obviously got the remit of people that are fairly capable, able, still able to get access things in the community, probably very low level in terms of need, right the way through to those that are actually you know, have got like four care calls a day and, and are cared for and, and perhaps are, are limited in terms of actually perhaps being able to get out and about and things. But actually the service that covers across all areas. We'd originally in the project had tiers of service. So our biggest tier was about that sort of preventative group, those that are not receiving statutory service provision, about sort of 65% of people that we'd aim to uh, work with there. 30% in that intermediate tier, perhaps sort of dipping into sort of some sort of reablement services or district nursing and things like that. And then 5% at the top tier. 
Um, what we have found, though, and it may be a little bit of the COVID sort of situation, but we're actually hitting about 15% in that top tier. But I think that probably gives you, um, or I, I feel it sort of suggests then that actually prevention can actually still be used for individuals that have got complex needs. This is about maintaining them at that level and, and still keeping them in the community, keeping them in their own homes without having the need to go into a sort of a residential placement or, or whatever. So I think it's quite that's quite been quite interesting for us to understand sort of where we can pitch these sorts of things. The, the Connect project, I mean, there's, there's lots of information out there about it on our website and things like that. So I'm not going to go into sort of a, a lot of detail, but um, the additional enhanced service provision, really, I said, aside from the tech, we have a digital pathway. So it is about connecting individuals that perhaps aren't digitally enabled to be able to sort of engage. And we are finding that we are linking a lot more with health now. So we've got a telehealth project going on in the region as well to try and pull those together, because invariably, it's the same customer, people with long-term conditions that would benefit from a telehealth provision. And actually, I'm sure we're, we're all aware of the fact that I think telehealth is still not quite got to where it needs to get. Um, and again, we're back to, as we were saying about commissioners within health, perhaps not understanding the, the true value and benefit of actually supporting individuals better in the community, stopping them from going in and, and hitting those services that, that they need to provide. So our digital pathway is now looking at, it's moved on a little bit and is linking, I suppose, our social care clients with our health clients as well and actually trying to provide that wraparound there. So that's quite a, quite exciting because that's an adapted part of the model really for us. It wasn't what the, the plan was in you know, initially. We've obviously got our community-based pathways of support. So we haven't changed any of those. Those are things that are already there, but we're analysing and trying to understand whether or not there are any other gaps in that provision to make sure that actually, if we've got like, a, I don't know, a high level of hoarding going on, then perhaps we need to then support commissioners of those sorts of services to provide something to support those clients. So again, we're not changing anything there. We just utilise what's already in place. But the biggest thing for us has been the response service. And, and Nathan, you touched on appropriate response in terms of that. When I came into this in 2011, it was one of those things that I was like, we need a response service because tech's a bit of a glass crutch. It, if you can't, if you've got to wait four plus hours for an ambulance to come when you're actually not injured. And I mean, four is being very generous there. I know we know of people that are on the floor for 10 plus hours waiting for something because they are and injured and it's not life-threatening and we all know the consequences of long lives and those individuals then are, are sucked into the health and social care system because you know the consequences of that our community welfare response has been um has been a challenge it's been quite scary on occasions for me because it's something new in, in terms of that but it's been absolutely wonderful the experience that that we've had of being you know you can you can see it there can't you when you're actually going and picking somebody up and making sure that they're comfortable whereas you know they would have been on the floor for four plus hours our staff have been brilliant all the way through covid and, and that again was quite a risky sort of situation you know new to everybody and we're going out there into the thick of it really and they've been an absolute well they've been a, a, amazing really but one thing that we decided to do is to actually register our response service with the Care Inspectorate Wales, which is, um, I guess it's C CQC, I think, in England, isn't it, in terms of the Care Commissioning uh, Quality Commission. So we're the only response service, certainly in Wales anyway, that has actually got the ability to provide that personal care provision. So we've got some response services that are 
part of a domiciliary care provision, which is fine, but they tend to get clogged with scheduled calls. So they're not reactive and not responsive in terms of that. But that's also opened up doors in terms of adapting our model to be able to work with our hospitals, work with Welsh Ambulance Service Trust to be able to provide another sort of bridging service provision in the hospitals and also some opportunities for us to actually take off of the stack with Welsh Ambulance Service to deal with those low level calls. So I think, you know, we've we've been very agile and flexible and, and quite open minded in although it's a project and it's got quite sort of driven in terms of what its outcomes should be and what we should be doing. Being Delta, we've been able to sort of flex a little bit really as things are coming through with regards to that. So I, I think I can sit and sort of gush about Connect quite a bit, but I, you know, we've had some challenges. It's been really sort of, you know, difficult in terms of trying to get it right. And I think the key for us is continued learning and changing and adapting. So if something doesn't work, okay, let's figure out what can work then and try that then a little bit. So I'm very much, although I don't like it, very much a, of the ethos of the whole Dr. Pepper sort of theme, you know, what's the worst that can happen really? As long as you're not doing anything illegal, then really give it a go because actually our customers are much more discerning and they want us to do something. They are less risk averse than we actually are. And it is a challenge from a health perspective, definitely about being sort of less risk averse, but we've sometimes just got to go with it. And that's what happened in COVID. You know, without being too thinking, a lot of governance went out of the window during COVID because you had to do something. These people had to make a difference and change the way that they worked. And I think that's added to the success, not just of Connect, but I think a lot of the proactive services across the UK that we see in having success there is that, you know, we took those barriers down and were able to actually achieve what we should be achieving for our clients. And um, I just hope that we don't revert back to sort of putting those barriers back up again, really, because it'll be it'll be disappointing because we've all probably been bagging our heads up against the brick wall for a long time about, well, look, this is common sense. We should just do this. It's the right thing to do. And this is what our customers want us to do. So let's sort of let's go with it really a little bit. So, um, so yeah, Connect's been... Um, been the, the reason for quite a lot of sleepless nights but actually um it's it's heartwarming to see and that those personal stories that are coming through you know it's on a daily basis and, and you clearly can see the difference that that's making that thank you carla rupert did you want to come in and talk about um amica 24 and how your preventative approach and um, whether as as with delta well-being did the pandemic for you open <laughs> take down some barriers t- t- drive things forward or, or was it more challenging than that it's um been a a really really interesting time to to see how a proactive uh, technology enabled care service performs within a pandemic environment and one of the key things that i've taken from it was thank god we had proactive preventive technology enabled care in place in worcestershire before the pandemic hit and I've had that fed back to me from commissioners. I've had that uh, fed back to me from lots of different stakeholders within uh, our service. And that's because, you know, we didn't have to introduce that approach. It was already embedded. We were already looking at how we problem solve. And Carla was talking about how you uh, need to evolve your, your service and things over time. And, and we've very much done that. And, and I think that... I think what Carla was talking about was, um, you know, you've got to you've got to take some leaps of faith 
with uh, assistive technology. And, um, you know, we always talked about when we were you know, coming up with the service was, you know, about, about the art of the possible. Let's start looking at things in a more positive way. So can we find a solution to that individual's situation, uh, their, their individual circumstances? You know, Nathan talked about, um, you know, enabling someone to go down to the shops. Well, let's do that. What technology can we use to actually facilitate uh, that for that person and and I think during the, the pandemic we were um, you know faced with a, a different set of uh, circumstances much more challenging and the team were absolutely fantastic in terms of getting out and making sure that people had those those devices and solutions to to help them to uh, maintain their their health independence and well-being uh, and you know it, it's really come into its own and, and one of the key things that I think we need to take forwards over the next year or so is is this real focus on sustainability because the pandemic changed everything in terms of the way that um, health and care needed to be delivered and we saw some really fantastic examples but there are a whole set of other challenges that that we've got which we can't ignore you know we're absolutely aware of our aging population you know, the increasing prevalence of, of long-term conditions and uh, disabilities. Um, you know, there's lots and lots of uh, demographic factors there that we need to be aware of and the shortage of carers as well. Um, you know, the workforce is under real pressure um, in terms of delivering care. So when Carla was talking about uh, the importance of uh, response services, um, you know, absolutely. Um, you know, these solutions and packages can really start to help with that whole sustainability um, piece. And, you know, we're very fortunate in Worcestershire, we have a falls response uh, service um, operated by uh, Platform Housing, which is, um, you know, a, a local um, organisation. And it's fantastic, you know, people, you know, getting a response uh, when they're when they're simply on the floor um, and needing that uh, that help um, to get out the reassurance, kindness, the interaction, you know that's that's really shown during the pandemic as well, and, and a really cost effective solution to helping someone who who isn't injured but is at risk, and you're actually making a positive intervention. And when you look at the grand scheme of things, it's a much more sustainable approach, you know calling out an ambulance for, for someone who's uninjured on the floor, uh, putting extra pressure on that ambulance service is not doing anybody any good. And you see it within the results. I think our record um, for an ambulance to, to turn up uh, at a property for, for someone who had fallen, uh, it wasn't in Worcestershire actually, but it was 15 hours. And when you're, you know, seeing that play out um, within an arc environment, it was amazing because it actually went over three different shifts, you know. So you had this call being passed. You know, it's bonkers. It's absolutely bonkers. And we must really promote the use of response services. You know, that really needs to be um, something that goes up the agenda in the UK because that they make positive interventions every single day. And when you talk with the the end user in this situation, they much prefer to have that response service coming out to them and looking after them, doing all of the forward, uh, the, the onward falls assessment work and, and things like that. And it just joins things together. 
And this is, you know, what has been central to, to the service that we've been operating in Worcestershire is, is about joining things together. We crucially assess people properly when we're designing the technology-enabled care packages. The link that we've got with, with adult social care and, and the social work teams, the individual social workers, being part of the reflective practice uh, meetings and um, really engaging with them and uh, being that, um, that expert advice for them has you know, really, really paid dividends. And it's not just a focus on uh, reducing care package costs, although that is one of the key benefits that comes out with uh, our service, but there's the whole prevention as well and you can calculate this you can use different insights from social workers for example to formulate that um, that avoidance it is very very simple to show how you are going to help someone to avoid going into residential care unnecessarily people don't want that they don't want to go into residential care if they can uh, avoid it and you can design solutions that are able to achieve that for people and you know i think that the whole um sustainability angle on this is is absolutely crucial because you know health needs to be involved in that that conversation um, they need to be involved in the commission of the services because um, you can really show how the costs and uh, sustainability around care and a person's journey through care. You know, we talk about life curve and, you know, how you can actually help someone to manage their progression. And these are the key things that have been part of our service and people have bought into it as well. Been really fortunate. We've got great commissioners um, in Worcester that have really, you know, kind of grasped the concept. You know, they've, they've said, you know, we know this is a good idea. You know, this is, it's a bit of a no-brainer. You know, we know that assistive technology is, is great and that it helps people. So we've got to do this. And they made that leap of faith. And, you know, you're seeing it with with uh, services like Carla's and, and others around the country, but we just need to really uh, progress this up, you know, make that leap of faith. I, I would, I totally, again, totally agree with everything. I, I can't find anything to, uh, to, to disagree with. Um, I think... For me, it's how do we take this from the, the, the two excellent examples we've we've heard from uh, so far today into the much wider spectrum of uh, enabling care services across the UK. You know, there are 175 alarm receiving centres across the UK, um, service providers, that some of which provide the whole end-to-end service, some provide just the mobile response or, or the installation service. And it's trying to raise the game uh, across the piece, uh, uh, and not just those that supply services, but clearly those that provide the solutions and those that commission them. This has to be a partnership approach. It can't be the days of a transactional relationship, asking somebody to install a thousand alarms a year or go and carry out you know, 2000 battery checks or whatever it may be. It's gotta be that partnership approach. Uh, people understanding that common language. Um, I think um, Rupert uh, put it clearly around that. This is, um, we're not looking for a one-size-fits-all approach to to tech. You know, everybody that is over 65 get automatically gets three things. It's got to be that trusted advisor role, putting your trust in the hands of the service providers that we've heard from today, based on referring into a service around outcomes and risks alongside professional practice, you know, positive risk-taking, just enough support, um, and those sorts of approaches, rather than I'm going to prescribe that you, you install 
you know, a, a few a pendant and alarm and a few other bits and pieces. Um, so it's giving the social workers the confidence that the service providers really know what they're talking about. They will go and find the solutions. They will go and innovate and they will challenge the very suppliers out there to say, actually, what you've got isn't good enough. We need solutions that can do X, Y and Z. Uh, so I do think uh, there's, a, there's a challenge for commissioners to think differently around this model. You know, they're being, they need to when they talk about proactive services, frankly, it isn't the same funding model they used to. Let's be honest, you, you don't, you know, a, a proactive um, focus call talking to I don't know, Fred on a monthly basis about his exercise routines or doing a, a video um, visit to, you know, um, Frida taking a medication and while she's there talking about a few questions, not necessarily totally scripted, but again, around the themes that we know around activities of daily living, around well-being aims. That is a far different service. That's not a 30-second call, get the phone down, get ready for the next person. So it needs to be a, a, an adult conversation about what you expect and how do you fund this? And indeed, how do you collectively between the commissioner, which tends to be social care at the moment, how do you take that conversation with that commissioner to the health colleagues to say, actually, this is the benefits to you? Explain the what's in it for me across the piece. I think we've talked at the start about reverting back to practices. I know um, I know there'll be a challenge, particularly in the health sphere personally, of, of you know massive in, improvement in remote monitoring solutions that have been used the last 18 months. But as we open up safely, um, not going back to saying, well, that's the crisis kit that goes in the cupboard. Now let's go back to the way we normally did things. And, and I guess finally, before I get on my soapbox, we are seeing far more activity now in the world of the analog to digital shift. You know, we've had 12 months of stabilization and now thinking, what do we do as you know the, the, the telecoms network changes over the coming years? And it already is happening. It's not no point just staying 2025 and thinking, we'll wait till then to start looking at it. Um, so clearly there's a lot of work to do. There's a lot of work on suppliers to make sure they can maintain supply. I mean, we know there's a global microchip shortage that again, I'm sure will be covered in another podcast. But equally, from a planning point of view, almost not diverting all your attention towards digital shift and the technical aspects, not losing sight of what we've talked about today. There is a danger that people say, well, actually, we've only got so much in our heads. We'll focus now on the, the service and the technical side and we'll forget about all the good learning and all the things we have learned during COVID that clearly, as you all said, Consumers, users and choosers, sons and daughters, you know, Fred and Frida, they all want a service that supports them to deliver their outcomes. Um, let's not lose sight of that by then thinking, okay, but well now we need to think more technical. And I, I do think that's our job in TSA to help share the benefits of this, to help services really think differently, to help those commissioners and those senior decision makers to understand that this isn't um, almost the last thing on the list of services you can choose from, which frankly it has been for a number of years. This has got to be right up front. And don't think of it as technology. It's that number one priority, and you can't see Rip putting his finger up on the screen, but I can. It's that number one priority to see enabling solutions at the as the, at the heart of care and, and health support, rather not an afterthought or not as an add-on after review period. And and as I said, we've been led by consumers that are telling us, you know, sons and daughters are telling us this is what they want. Let's not uh, let's not almost uh, brush that off and actually go back to reverting to type. Yeah, I think that's and it links really well to the sort of sustainability and spread thing and the benefits realization and what we observed in the project with lots and lots of pilots, very similar pilots being done, um, not sustainable, not not scalable because every commissioner wants to try it in their own context, not taking that leap of faith, faith with the Barcelona model, taking what you can learn from it and adapt it to your specific context. You can't just transplant things. You have to do. You do have to think about context, and it's just yeah, just the same pilots being done again. And then the the results of those pilots, the commission, the, the person with the ultimate decision making power, that's very nice. But it's a very small scale pilot. That's not persuasive to me. You haven't given me the evidence I need 
to invest in this. And I think that is the challenge that we we found in the project was prevention being quite a challenging thing for some people to, to find that evidence base on. How do you prove by doing X, you prevented Y? Um, and especially if Y is a health cost and that budget is not joined, where is the incentive there for the commissioner in adult social care to invest in that? I think that's really good to hear from you, Rupert, that you are pushing that sort of evidence base and you are able to. And there are ways to do it. You know, you can build in economic costing and you can work out with the with by engaging with people with expertise in the sector. What would happen if this hadn't been put in? What was the likely scenario? What would And then put a cost to that. It can be done. And I think it's a question of finding a way to share where, where good practices happen, share how costs are, cost savings, because ultimately that is a quite a persuasive argument, share how you capture well-being outcomes, which again is a challenging thing to capture because well-being is a very personal thing. How do you standardise that? How do you capture that? How do you, you know, persuade a commissioner around that? And I think it's an ongoing challenge, but I think it's something that as an academic I have a role to play and I think the TSA has a role to play in, in sharing good practice. And I think when commissioners and, and service providers get it right, they can really, you know, use every opportunity to sort of make it loud and clear where it's gone, gone well. And hopefully other people can, can think about applying similar models in, in their context. I do think uh, clearly we're seeing far more uh, interest and investment from NHSX, Department of Health and Social Care in um independent living at home, um, how do we better support people in care homes th um, through technology and, and enabling services. We have a real opportunity to have a better discussion with integrated care systems, uh, ICSs, as they are developed, to ensure it, it is at the heart of their thinking, um, that it is an opportunity to champion a collective voice across social care, housing and health, um, and not, not be predominantly um, health-led, and I think uh, all of us, as as Kate has, uh, said, is we've got the ability uh, and the opportunity to start to tell the story around how do you measure the benefits, how do you provide that what's in it for me for all services, uh, and and not make benefits realization almost um, in the too difficult pile and and, and something we do after the after the, after the fact to go back and say did this really make a difference? It has to be right up front in everyone's thinking alongside all the stuff we talked about today. Thank you, Nathan. And thank you for co-hosting today. And I'd really like to thank Carla and Rupert for being so inspiring and sharing their experience of, of delivering services that, that go beyond that risk to think about prevention and proactive and well-being. And um, thank you very much for all your contributions. And I hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. <laughs>